Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, I got on a friend, Dr. Zebulon Vance-Militsky, author of Before Bussin, A History of, Be- of Boston's Long Black Freedom Struggle. My brother, how you doing today? I am good, man. Feel feeling good. Glad to be on with you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, man. You know, we wrapped for a good little minute before we got on, man. So I'm I'm hyped to get the conversation going, man. So 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 to get to so to get a crack in. Um, why did you decide to write before us? Yeah, well, um, thank you, first of all, just for having me. Um I um I guess I decided to write before busing probably because of my own autobiography, my own background. I grew up in Boston, um, grew up uh, biracial in Boston. I think that's a relevant point. I'm just going to just go there. Um, <laughs> and uh, grew up in the, you know, basically the 1980s, 1990s, uh, the period pretty much after this crisis note in Boston known as busing, school desegregation. Um, uh I think, I think at a young age, I was always uh, aware of the fact that there had something had happened in the city of Boston that I didn't quite understand, but I knew, uh, I knew its name was busing because it was something that you just hear about a lot, um, and uh, maybe being you know sort of that betwixt and between you know uh, yeah. place, uh, I think I was probably more sensitive to it. Uh, because it was clear to me that uh, something had taken place in the city of Boston that that pretty much had really um, left uh, left marks on on the city and on, on the psyche of the people, uh, both black and white. Uh, but I pretty much, you know, grew up uh, in the black community of Boston. Uh, never went to school outside of Roxbury until uh, college when I went to to Boston College up the road in Chestnut Hill. And um, so I was, I was quite aware that uh, there was a, a, a past, a history, uh, one that was, didn't seem too good, one that seemed uh, pretty difficult for the people who lived through it. And I think, I don't know, I felt like I always uh, wanted to do something about that. <laughs> you know, and I'm only just realizing that as I'm saying this to you, kind of, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I always, I felt like something needed to be done about about that, I didn't didn't um, didn't really feel good about the kind of way of life in terms of how where race exists and how how race operates in 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 the city of Boston. And I think it's pretty well known today that this is uh, this is an issue up in Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah, man. And so before we skip a little bit further, um, take us back to your time at Boston College. How did your time at, in, in Chestnut Hill um, helped form your own understanding about um, Black experience and and also in terms of uh, this project as well. Because I say that because uh, as our listeners will uh, see when, when they uh, read your book after going to USC Press's website and clicking uh, uh, one of those purchase uh, uh, links, which they will, believe me, they will, Okay. Um, you know, you know, they'll also see your very long and very like in-depth acknowledgments page. 
Yes, yes. People are talking about the acknowledgments. I guess I wrote a long acknowledgments. Brother, hold on, man. You got to hold on, brother. <laughs> let, let me, let, let me you, you've been a little too, uh, you've been a little too The press here, was uh, very generous. <laughs> Look, they got to be, bro, because let me see. This thing starts on page 195 and ends on 209. My, my, my. Oh, my goodness. For some people, that is a small chapter of a book. Yeah, it's funny. People have remarked on it. Um, you know, I had a lot of people to thank, um, obviously, you know. And um, I think, you know, you, you, you're right on target, as always, because uh, perhaps, again, because of the sort of journey, being, being what it is and what it has been, not always an easy one, uh, I might add, and I've spoken about that elsewhere and in other uh, interviews and stuff um won't be easy uh in a city like boston with its with this hypersensitive uh nature around race but um yeah i had a lot of people to thank you know to to for really to, for keeping me sane in a lot of ways you know <laughs> as you navigate through all those kinds of things um and i know you know before we were talking about you know some of the some of the some of the the baggage that some people carry from having come up in, in the city, uh, uh, bi uh, the biracial variant of black, or just as we know, black as we know it. Yep. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, um, and, you know, I'm no exception at all to that. Um, so I, I, I think the acknowledgements page is, is probably a little lengthy uh, because of that. Um, uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of mentoring that had to take place. There was a lot of um, people who, you know, kind of, as as we do in the black experience, in the, in the black, you know, cultural tradition. You know, people take people under their under their wing, look out for them, protect them, try to teach them how to fly, you know, and hope for the best. It doesn't always work out, and um, oh, you know, uh, as I think back to some of those kinds of interventions a lot of which happened a lot of which happened at Boston College um and and before and 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 on ongoing basis um a lot of not always black men and women but many many uh you know we call them bridges or leaders you know or whatever um who who did uh, stand in the gap for me as I think about it and and and, and taught a guy named Zebulon Maletsky. See, this is the name to everything. You know, it's been a rough road, brother. You know what I mean? It's not easy. <laughs> you know, it's not easy. And um, and then and then I had this stubborn uh, insistence on identifying as such. You know, even though that is not always visually. This is this is a, vi a video as well as an audio podcast. Correct? Is it not so? People. Oh, no, no. Well, it, it, it's uh, just audio. But okay. one, like I said, once they cl hit click and they see the author page and they're like, oh, that's a brother. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, see, I see the pronouns here. I see the pronouns. Because I ain't gonna lie, there are some people that I do notice. I'm like, oh, let, let, let me see some of their uh, more personal uh, flourishes and be like, okay, are we using personal pronouns? Are we, and so I look, our, we know each other. <laughs> But for those who might be wondering, he's already said it, but he's also, you can see it in his work as well. Yeah, yeah this is one case where uh, I should I'll only do audio stuff from now on because this is helpful to me, see. 
but uh the visual it doesn't always give this convey this meaning but um but that's 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 interesting in and of itself but i mean all of those things i i just i just threw my whole heart and soul into this thing honestly um and i and i guess that's why i didn't really mind kind of just put it on paper you know to give my little testimony of people who who helped me to it really as a way of explaining the work too though mm-hmm. you know because boston is famous for being kind of a closed space in terms of outsiders or you know people uh, certain stories that may not get shared may not be told um and uh i think that uh, a lot of the stuff in the book uh, was only really possible to be uh, to be recorded uh, because of the space of you know kind of being from there, and then also, quite frankly, a lot of it I was also even through my own family. Uh, I grew up with the you know it just so happens this is just luck of the draw, but the black side of my family is from Boston. My dad is from New York. If I was written writing a book about New York, might have been a whole. Uh, it, it would have been. It probably wouldn't have been about Black New York. You know, it would have been maybe. But, but, um, but that that was important because, um, uh, you know, as I think about it, uh, these narratives, these oral histories, and these, and more importantly, the oral tradition of storytelling of how these things get passed down. You know, is trust is a is a part of it. And uh, that's a that's an important uh, kind of bond that uh, had to honor and keep sacred. So I had to really, I think I felt explain. I'm really into explaining things. Like this is, <laughs> you know, this thing didn't just come out of nowhere. This this is um, this is because of you know some some love interventions. And also, um, I think also the uh, the coming to fruition of the of the work of many generations of great teachers, and and families who who were you know this is this was I'm not saying this was the, their dream, but um, we were encouraged, you know, in the schools that I attended in Boston, like the Wayne Monroe Trotter, to tell our story and to tell our people's story. That was something that was ingrained at a very young age. And I guess I was listening, you know, it, 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 it stuck with me. I didn't really have anything else to do to be honest. <laughs> you know, I said, uh, uh, um, you know, I, I can do this. Like this, this is worth, this is worth, you know, putting in 10 or 12 years of my life to, to try to tell this story. <laughs> and speaking of someone who probably knew you throughout the book of that story, it leads to our next question. And so you received two prominent blurbs um, on the back of uh, Before Bussin. One of them came from the dearly departed uh, Dr. John H. Bracey from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And so this is what he writes of Before Bussin. Quote, this is a history of black and white Bostonians and all their variations in ethnicity and national origin that few others, if any, could have written. Before busing begins at the origins and guides, uh, before busing begins at the origins and guides us through victories and defeats, competing goals and contradictory strategies. There is a galaxy of personalities, some well known, many revealed for the first time. Strong throughout, brilliant when combining existing scholarship and archival research with interviews and insights 
game for personal experience before busing get to Boston, right, end quote. So please tell us, for those who did not have the chance to get to know uh, Dr. Bracey, tell us about Dr. Bracey and what he means to you and to this project. Ah, yes, the incomparable Dr. Bracey, yeah. Um, Could weave, had a way with words, he did. (laughs) And that is really like high praise too, because not one to, uh, to give that out lightly. I could tell, um, I, well, it felt like he, he really meant that. And um, yeah, uh, that's a great question. Uh, that's another great question because because as you surmised, uh, and it is true, Gracie, uh, as, as, as someone who I had a chance to study with at UMass Amherst and study, you know, sort of at his, at his feet in a way, it's how it felt, at least at the beginning. <laughs> uh, um, you know, he he had a lot to do with this project. And I could say that he really, um, and I do, I think I talked about that in the Americans too. What didn't I talk about? The um, but um, <laughs> but uh, he, you know, he, uh, 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 I think it was some, I think it was a question and an issue that interested him um, as often can happen with, you know, in the graduate school process, sometimes we uh, may inherit uh, un- uh, the interest of people that we study with. Um, and, you know, UMass uh, being pretty not too far down the road in a way, uh, the Mass Pike, you know, from Boston, and also being a place that receives a lot of students from Boston, um, also having undergone, you know, a school desegregation situation out there in Western Mass in places like Springfield. Um, uh, I think, you know, I, I know this was of interest to him and he had always encouraged me about it. He always encouraged me very gently as, as Bracey's, you know, want to do sometimes, um, almost subliminally. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I didn't totally have the, to be honest, I don't, I don't think I really quite had the the uh, confidence at first to take on such a topic. This is not an easy history, as as you know, and um, and also when one undertakes to write an in, you know sort of an intellect to intellectualize a place that is already uber intellectualized and known for that, it's it can be a little intimidating, um, you know, um, with all Boston's you know vaunted traditions of scholarship and intellectualism harvard university and the you know the great poets and the great writers and you know and wadsworth longfellow emily dickinson's and i don't know all and on and on and on and it and the sort of um high ground that boston you know was, was known to occupy in terms of education at all levels um made this sort of a seemed like like a very daunting task but but you know uh, yeah, yeah. Bracey diff, did encourage me about it. He had useful suggestions of, of archival, you know, resources that could help to, in telling the story. Um, he had he, you know, and it, it's hard, you know, you really feel his loss. But, you know, he he through the mentoring, um, you know, kind of the lenses and frameworks one would need to really see the 
a, a multi-headed hydra of, of how race works in Boston. You know what I'm saying? It, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, it's, it's working at multiple levels and simultaneously and exponentially. And so, um, and, and there I've got to also give credit, a lot of credit to African-American studies, a shout out to black studies and, mm -hmm. and, the, and the discipline of which Bracey is a, one of the founders and pioneer. And I don't think one could really truly totally understand some of the, the ways that race, the complicated ways that race works without some of those um, frameworks. And so whether through conversations or, you know, the ongoing tedious pro uh, process of graduate education, taking courses, doing the coursework, you know, taking the, all that stuff that we, we, we do, um, it began to, I started to realize, first of all, I got, I got nothing but time. And, uh, and then I, so I filled that time and used that time to prepare. I was, I was low key preparing to write this book, I think for a long time. And I didn't do my dissertation on it. My dissertation was on a related topic, but in a different area. Uh, I was on interracial marriage in Boston is what I mm -hmm. sort of, uh, slant that I guess I took on it as a way, uh, which was helpful too, uh, as a way to understand, you know, some of the other more other complicated aspects of Boston's uh, legacy in terms of its, in terms of American history, the way it was seen by the South, the way it was viewed within the North itself, within New England, all of those things um, was kind of, that, that ended up being a useful way to kind of back into the subject uh, so to speak but he was there bracy was there the whole way through it all. yeah yeah through it all with great suggestions and you know um guiding guiding uh, a somewhat stubborn and sometimes you know lazy uh graduate student to be quite honest like hey, hey, on there i did it I this did took it. yeah yeah running down <laughs> these sources and it took years it really did take years so so uh, he was he was also patient and that helped. <laughs> yeah. And, and so before we um, leave the conversation about Dr. Bracey, I've read the blurb that he provided for for you for the book. When you first received it, how did it make you feel? Like, like what did it like? Because I, as you you know, he was a part of your process for 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 getting a dissertation. So that I can only imagine for me now what it would feel like for. Dr. Dunbar to give me a, some some blurred material for for my dissertation and a later book. So so take us to that initial moment when you when I don't know the full process of how this works, but at least when you first learned what the words I just read. Yeah, there was a moment like that. I got an email from uh, before the book came out from the editor. They were excited about the blurb, um, and um, oh, you know it it felt. It felt good um, because I felt like because one thing I was, I guess I was always um, somewhat not nervous about, but you know, a little anxious about was uh, was was you know was filling that tall order that that Boston requires in terms of getting this right, you know. So I mean, mm -hmm. for him to say. Dr. Malet uh, Professor Maletsky gets Boston right. I mean, that's like whoa, you know. And it was, it, it was, it was. Uh, I, I was elated. Um, that's that's kind of one of those premier 
moments that we all long for. And, and I think especially coming from someone who, man, you know, how, how do we find the words? We're all going to be trying to figure this out in this coming year, you know, in, in the wake of his passing, uh, to find the words to describe what Bracey, a person like Bracey really, really meant. But we know that, I know that I've, I've heard Bracey described as sort of a walking black encyclopedia of facts and knowledge and information. Um, but he's also like this powerful storyteller who has touched kind of the, um, the touchstone, some important moments in black history himself was mentored and really comes from the firmament of, you know, that, that rich soil of black thinking, I want to say, uh, his own kind of walk. And so when somebody like that, um, you know, kind of says, okay, you walked it, you did it, you brought, you, you carried the water along the way enough, uh, that, that just felt really good, uh, right there. You know, it's, it's I had always felt, and this kind of relates to one of your other questions, I had always felt that, that the story of Boston wasn't being told correctly. That's kind of a bold thing to say, but wasn't <laughs> it just wasn't um it, it there was there was a big piece missing. Mm -hmm. Uh to me it was fairly obvious what it was. There's an invisibility of the of black Boston and black Bostonians to some extent. Um and you know, we were kind of chatting about this earlier. When people think of Boston, they don't necessarily think of it as a black space or black city, the way you might think of say Washington DC or well, certainly not Washington DC, but let me, let me start like, let me, that's a high bar. Let me go back New York, <laughs> Chicago, you know, Philadelphia or something like that. Um, and in, indeed Boston always had a, had a somewhat smaller black population. Uh, uh, the numbers tell that story, but I think it's just, uh, that is the, the, uh, the the that's the sort of you know kind of things that you find or feel in other cities you know boston's always been kind of i think especially a lot of black folks mostly because of this this rough history of, of school desegregation and busing just not seen as a as a as a place that's welcoming or or positive and so um that's that's another reason why i felt like uh the story needed to be told, you know, you know, W.B. Du Bois and uh, William Monroe Trotter and, you know, and Booker T. Washington, you know, all involved and interested in Boston at various times for various reasons. Um, you know, uh, uh, the, the, sh the shot heard round the world that started off the American Revolutionary War you know, was a black man by the name of Crispus Attucks in Boston. You know, Boston's got some like in important connections to, uh, well, I should say black Boston has some important connections to American history and American history has some important connections and, and, and contributions that were brought about by this small, but mighty, you know, kind of community of, of mm -hmm. thinkers, intellectuals, activists, and and leaders, uh, and thought leaders, you know. Um, so 
of course, they, this is the best kept secret. You know, they, they, we got to like let people know what some of the some of the contributions. You know, and we and as we were joking, we have new edition. Okay. Yes. The, yes. That's our claim, <laughs> claim right there. You know. Yeah. It all started in a place called Orchard Park Projects. You know. So yes. this. <laughs> yes. We have to we have to claim these things. Got to got to got to claim it, man. Because and, and for those who who might be wondering, where does this even come from? And so. Uh, uh, brother Zebulon and I we were rapping before we press record um, because I watch a lot of basketball and uh, anytime you have some of these prominent broadcasts in whatever city that they're in, they'll choose uh, uh, music from the city as the outro to a commercial. Anytime it's in Boston, Boston Celtics, or maybe even uh, the, the New England Patriots, uh, they'll choose some something from from that catalog from new edition bbd and and such especially those guys on, on, on tnt the, the nba on tnt guys and Shaq, kenny and all those guys that ernie and chuck and so uh those, those guys who just play it all the time um and uh and and actually you know you, you had mentioned uh before about interviews and so uh, one question i do have um in terms of interviews how because I also think about other contributions to Boston. The greatest documentary series in U.S. history is Boston based Eyes on the Prize. And so, like, and that's based on interviews. Some of the greatest interviews that, especially when you're able to find the, the, the long form uh, versions. And so it makes me think about the interviews that you had for the book. So, so in, in Before Busting, can you describe some of the interviews? that you conducted uh for this particular book. Yeah, yeah. Um and 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 absolutely. I was, you know, I uh like the rest of the country, you know, watched and remembered Eyes of the Prize, remember winning at all kinds of awards and um and was was blown away then uh by the power of of, of oral histories. Um and uh the you know Man, you're a good interviewer. See, this is you're right. That's that's a, that's, a, that's exactly that is that was a big thing. Um, Henry Hampton, you know, uh, the the man who um, who started Blackside, you know, I, and I had a chance actually to meet him uh, years ago. It's a story I tell sometimes uh, at Boston College. Matter of fact, um, you know, uh, because. Uh, well, he won an, uh, He was getting an uh, honorary doctorate from BC in my, that was my freshman year of college. That would have been 1993. And, um, you know, they, uh, they, they, they asked me to be his usher and stuff. <laughs> but um, it was perfect because I had gotten involved, you know, again, those mentors, uh, there's a group called the Boston Association of Black Journalists offshoot of the national association and uh some of the some of the folks at that time who were who were uh the sort of cutting edge and known black journalists in the city were members of the of that and i actually got a scholarship and i i got a chance to you know henry hampton was honored at that so it was i kept kind of like you know 18 year old zebulon like totally clueless not not understanding i'm be honest like i didn't understand it what was happening at the time uh but you know, I guess they were sort of precursors to the future, um, future interests. And no, uh, yeah, uh, uh, 
the, the my favorite episode hands down was always you know that part of the eyes and the two uh section uh that talked about boston uh, yep. was absolutely blown away by that and only in time came to understand that uh you know that the part of that was because black side itself was based in boston and then and then later you know which i learned in some of the interviews i did for this book you know uh um uh you know, pe- people whose couches Henry Hampton was like, you know, staying on and, and, and who helped him to uh, put, get Blackside going and stuff like that. So much to say about this, but, but anyway, uh, uh, I thought by, by far, it, it's, it's the most powerful way to convey history, especially hard history, confusing history. You know, you, you know, listening to the words of some of the people that are in that now famous episode uh like gene mcguire you know talking about uh, as a new school teacher walking into these you know classrooms that were you know sort of falling down around themselves no no pens or pencils or resources and books um a school named after you know one of those 19th century you know educators uh, of, of which are so many famous names and education that emerge out of Boston. You know, just the symbolism of the the Boston or New England schoolhouse, you know, all of that, what that represents, you know, in 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 like in American life and culture. Um and yet here's this, you know, kind of um uh uh ignored and under resourced community in the heart of it all, the place that, you know, where public education started first high school in America, first public high school, Boston Latin school and mm-hmm. Harvard itself and all the other, you know, uh, uh, citadels of higher education and of uh, at all education at all levels. Um, it's a paradox, you know, I mean, you, you really just, and this is the biggest thing that Bracey taught me was common sense. Like you, it's th- these paradoxes, you know, the disparity between the myths of, of a place like Boston and the reality, you know, for mm-hmm. black folks. And um, even even the idea that Boston was part of the civil rights narrative, I thought was a profound statement, you know, with eyes on the prize. Because you've got, I don't know, so many episodes. You can't, you can't tell every story, you know, mm-hmm. but the fact that people... The fact that Henry Hampton and then all the other people involved saw that as an important part of the of that narrative of civil rights in the North, but just civil rights in general, because even though the Eyes on the Prize looks at a lot of places in the North, I mean, it's mainly, I think the, most of the places, most of the topics are, are places in the South. So, um I always felt that was encouraging. I'll just put it that way. The, yeah. the, there was potential there. If if they if they saw uh, Boston as part of the of that struggle that SNCC and other groups were pushing for, uh, that this was indeed you know the outpost of Freedom North in a way, or one of them, uh, an important one, then it seemed to me uh, a good enough. Uh, there was enough clues there that suggested there's more to that story. And and literally, that's all I really had to go on. Much to my delight, you know, as I dug deeper, I started to realize just how deep those connections were 
it, this was not just uh, Northern Friends of SNCC. You know, mm -hmm. they were doing, um, there's a lot of overlap and there's a lot of people uh, doing important things, uh, SNCC-like things, I want to say, <laughs> for lack of a better way to put it, freedom schools, um, building curricula, you know, challenging in innovative ways, like just as innovative as Mississippi Freedom Summer or uh, other other uh, approaches is is the kinds of things you've seen happening on the ground in Boston. I mean, they really just, with all those brilliant people, and there's a lot of smart people in Boston. That's another thing that's hard to do with this history. When you have to interview some people who are very bright and uh, and so on, and the connections and it's all just this colorful, you know, uh, cascade of information and intellectual connections and insights, et cetera. Um, that also could be, uh, could be a little bit, a little bit daunting, but I just reveled in it. You know, I like, I let, like turn the mic, kind of like what you do, turn the microphone on and let people tell, tell their stories, right, wrong, or otherwise corroborate it with the evidence, make sure, you know, it's, cause sometimes people's recollections fade and that kind of yeah. thing. But um, but uh, that was the joy. Um, anyway, but I'm, thank you for noticing. Oral history was a big part of this book, okay. uh, purposefully uh, so, intentionally. I, I wanted to do it that way. Yeah, and so transitioning, so we're going to transition with this next question from uh, a production of the late 20th century to something that, for most people, takes them to the late 19th century. And so typically people see separate but equal, uh, the separate but equal doctrine really as a Southern phenomenon uh, due to the terms attachment, as many know, to the Plessy uh, decision. What surprising role does separate but equal play in Boston's long freedom struggle? Yeah, yeah. Um, this was another um, kind of thing that I, that, you know, I don't know about other people, but I didn't have like every single part of the book when I first started the book. Um, mm. I had I had I had some notions of what of what I was looking for, but it wasn't until I really got into the archives and got, you know, opened up some of these some of these legal books and things myself to try to really trace this. But but um, you know, I've also noticed a trend in Boston of kind of, and it's part it's a little bit part of the myth making, uh, the you know. Boston is just full of, of of myths, you know, the city upon a hill. Um, I mean, that's right from day one. Um, you know, never mind the sort of general kind of myth making that happens in the north about somehow being kind of like somehow being better than places in the south. You know, this is Boston; we don't have those problems here. Kind of mentality. Um, uh, but I also noticed that um, I think people naturally start would always make the assumption that um that that if there was a place that you know probably had you know integrated schools it would probably be boston um and uh that that is partly the case because uh brown versus board of education the uh the decision handed down by the warren court um mentions mentions that about Boston, that it's, that it's uh, a model uh, and has had, you know, has had a long history of desegregated schools, but they didn't exactly tell the, the how they came to be. 
Um, there was a great book that came out, I don't know, probably even about 15 years now. It's called Sarah's Long Walk mm-hmm. uh, that that also does a similar kind of thing. It's a, it's a history of uh, the, the, uh, uh, the uh, Roberts family, Sarah Roberts and her father, who um, basically um, sued the city of Boston um, because Sarah has to walk by like, you know, five other schools before getting to the one school in Boston at that time that allowed black students to attend there. Um, and so it, uh, I, you know, part of this is like the hubris of publishing. It sounds like, you know, oh, wow, this is like Brown versus Board of Education too, you know, uh, somebody who, you know, who is basically, because it's very similar to some of the stories that came out of, you know, the Brown uh, lawsuit. Um but what, what is underplayed oftentimes is the fact that the Roberts case was, uh, well, I won't say whether it was successful or unsuccessful, but technically speaking, it didn't, it lost. They, the Roberts lost their case against Boston. The courts uh, ruled that the that, uh, city of Boston was not guilty of maintaining, you know, two distinct uh, school systems. And if it was, then it was it was actually legal to do so. And they didn't use the term uh, separate but equal in Roberts versus Boston in 1849, but they, uh, they uh, essentially used the same uh, language of separate but equal. And in fact, so much so that by the time... Uh, uh, Homer Plessy's case in 1896 comes before the Supreme Court Plessy versus Ferguson. Different set of of issues, but but they the the uh, the judge actually in the decision cites Roberts as supporting this idea of separate but equal. This is the of course the Plessy. I'm sure your listeners will know Plessy versus Ferguson uh, is the doctrine that established. Uh, uh, is the decision, as you say, that's established the separate but equal doctrine, uh, not based just on Louisiana standards or Southern standards, but on, uh, uh, you know, good old Boston, Massachusetts, you know, the place that's supposed to be above such things and all that. And so um, I found I found that pretty profound. But then again, uh, I've found I've seen a lot of other examples just like that, things that we naturally assume are Southern phenomenon that actually uh, have find their inception point in the North. <laughs> and um, this was this is just one example of that. So so people got to know, you know, that that some of these ideas that we attribute to and arrogantly and falsely attribute to some kind of Southern backwardness or something like that you know, have their beginnings in the North uh, and in Northern places, if for no other reason that, you know, all for all those reasons that Boston is the first public library, the first, this, the first, that, because it's first uh, and earliest um, in, in, a, in the United States of America, right? Meaning uh, if America has problems with race, then look to its origin points and that, that that takes you to Jamestown, but it also takes you to to Massachusetts, you know, um, uh, for for the origins of some of those things. So so to think that Boston would somehow be an exception to the systemic racism 
of you know of of, of settler colonialism and <laughs> the apocalypse thereof, then uh, uh, would is is a real oversight and 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 is to fall subject to the myth making. So I was trying to like cut through that, you know, see Boston for what it is. You know, the same reason we always have to remind people that oh, you know, there was slavery in Boston. You know, there was. Yeah, I live in New York oh, now. We do the same. Yeah. The reason you always have to remind people is because you're you're countering against the countervailing myth that has gathered so much steam over the years to make people forget that there was ever slavery in New England at all. One hundred percent. And um, I, you know, gotta show love to your shout out to Gerald Horn, uh, Apocalypse of uh, Style yes. of Colonialism, uh, which I see you also got a a good citation in the in the, in the book as well. Um, and so we're actually going to do an interesting thing here where we uh, flip the understanding uh, geographically from uh, one part of the country to the other. So we're going to talk about uh, somebody uh, that, that is always a, controver a controversial figure to talk about in terms of Booker T. Washington. And so uh, for some, obviously, Booker T. Washington is, is, Southern, um, is a Southern person. Virginia, Hampton, Tuskegee. But your book, Before Bussing, uh, chronicles an interesting interact set of interactions that he had with uh, Boston's uh, Black political establishment. And so can you talk to us about Washington's kind of role in the long uh, Black freedom struggle in Boston in the late 19th and early 20th centuries? Yeah, yeah. You know, again, this this really does bring things back to John Bracy because, you know, this is this was a topic of uh, that he's uh, uh, finds you know very interesting and I, and I guess I again, you know, in in just being around uh, actually a, a, quite a few professors who found this topic you know quite interesting um, all the time, you know, was always sort of being mentioned and. Um, the clues were there, you know, uh, I knew that I always remember that, you know, I, mean, I think we most most of us know, you know, that uh, uh, Booker T. Washington starts the National Negro Business League in Boston. That's kind of a, a little factoid that you hear. Ah, OK, that's interesting. Um, you know, and I knew that Washington had a had a full out, you know, uh, a kind of attack. Uh, uh, which is which was we call the Boston riot, uh, where you know William Monroe Trotter shows up at a church that he was speaking at, and all hell broke loose. Uh, is something that that the us, you know, historians of the Black experience tend to call the Boston riot. Um, but you know, even though even knowing those kind of facts, I it, it I didn't really put it all together till I started to put started to put it together in a sense of, of having kind of a, a clue there. Why? Okay, so I knew that he starts it there, but why? Why did you start it there? What was the focus or interest in Boston uh, of Booker T. Washington? Um, and, um, uh, and, and that's still a question that's, that's, that's still open for debate because um, uh, no, one, no one probably will quite know exactly why, but, but you know, Considering the fact, um, you know, uh, that 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 he spent so much time in Boston, he clearly had an interest in the city in various ways. He had an interest in being 
kind of uh, benighted, you know, by the uh, the uh, establishment, the Eastern or New England establishment, namely Harvard, uh, I would say, um, you know, uh, when I found out that he had received an honorary degree from Harvard, a doctorate from from Harvard, uh, I said, OK, that's another interesting thing. And uh, and then read about the fact that he's there even at the dedication of the uh, 54th Massachusetts. Had no idea. Had no idea. I, I didn't know. They didn't used to know that. Uh, just, you know, once you start, start, yeah, yeah, right? I don't think a lot of people necessarily do. Some people know. Um, but, uh, but, you know, so it was just like, but this is his fault. I mean, he's there all the time. He's trying to be there. Right. It's not our job to understand why Booker T. Washington would be popping up in all these places in Boston. But but he's there because uh, I suppose as we all try to figure out the, uh, the panopticon of, un, you know, the Booker T. Washington is a very uh, hard person to understand. And so many, so many layers to this very interesting American life. But um, but I think I think clearly he. Uh, in the same way he sought, you know, the um, investment and support of white philanthropists and industrialists and, you know, captains of industry. Uh, he also uh, wanted a piece of that, you know, New England kind of, uh, 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 I don't know what the, what the exact what word it would be, but uh, uh, that kind of, you know, that, that pedigree, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, and, and so then it begins to make sense when you understand the ambition of a book, of Booker T. Washington, uh, in terms of, you know, his amassing of power, of course. Oh, okay. Now this makes more sense. Uh, of course, it's also confusing because Booker T. Washington talked so much about, he talked against Northern education, first of all, right. You know, famously, you know, we, we saying black people don't need to be you know, learning about literature and all this, you know, kind of little, the stuff they do up there in the North, the liberal arts, I mean, that's part of his rhetoric. It is part of his whole sort of ideology, you know, cast down your bucket where you are. He's, he always focused so much on the South and ridiculed, actually. I mean, he ridiculed like Northern process of, of education, uh, especially for, for black people, right? Booker T. Washington is so, so hard to understand. I mean, he's to, he used to he used to warm up the audience with like darky jokes and stuff like that, like what, you know, like what did talk about throwing people off the scent? So so I just decided to look at the facts, you know, and then come to find out, you know, even though he's ridiculing northern education, he sends his own son and daughter to be educated in York. He owns a summer home in in the Weymouth in North Shore of Boston, yeah. right? So 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 ah okay. So we already knew we already know Washington is a is a first class hustler, okay? <laughs> he's, yeah. he's you know, he, he he says one thing, uh, you know, does does another thing, right? Uh um, you know, and and uh uh and so so in that pursuit he had this he had this and I think he was also very fearful of some of the uh some of the opposition that came from there, like William Monroe Trotter, like um, although when Washington's at his height, William Monroe Trotter, who they don't, he doesn't, no one knows who Trotter is yet. Uh, Washington is the preeminent, you know, voice and leader 
uh, of that time period. So, um, and lastly, because this because the struggle is about education, Washington's position on industrial education matters. Right, he he would have rethought and changed had which I really you know as I as I got going and looking into that into his papers looking at all the research he would have uh, set things in a motion that would have been uh, that would have impacted education not only in Boston but obviously in in the country as a whole uh, perhaps using you know if, if it could work in Boston uh, uh, then then you know the, the heart at home of education then it could it could work anywhere um, but obviously that that idea was never fully realized. But I think that so I uh, the, so it just seemed to me that um, the triangulation of the ideology and thinking of William Monroe Trotter, that of Du Bois, the preeminent you know thinker of twentieth century, um, and uh, and Washington uh, also as educator and as thinker. Um, because uh, that's what they all kind of had in common. Um, Trotter doing doing that's more so through the newspaper, but um, that that that, that three way, you know, kind of fight with other voices involved as well certainly um, is going to have implications for education in the twentieth century and indeed just leadership and direction of the race as a whole. And it happens a lot of it is happening in Boston. And one of the things is we get close to wrapping up here that I thought that that section really did well. As someone who did so much of uh, the Black Heritage Trail tours, I did a lot of those that directed people on Black Boston, especially Black Boston's uh, 18th and 19th, early 20th century history. It's fascinating hearing about the the connections that Washington had with the abolitionists uh, the the descendants of abolitionists, which I think to me, like I, I feel like you know, I, I, I'm, in no other place do you really hear about the legacy of abolitionism more than here. I live in Philadelphia now. Lord knows there's a the the college movement is founded here in Philadelphia, and a lot of the the black political class here, Philadelphia or here in New York. And, and, and you know Baltimore, but in no other place does the legacy of that right because then you connect it to the founding of the NAACP and Garrison and and a lot of those different families. And so to me, that was actually the section that really I was like, oh dang, I, I I did not realize the the enmeshing of that as much. Uh, maybe because I'm writing a dissertation where I'm so focused on like that. 18th century, like American Revolutionary era and before, but it is something that to me, I think for listeners is really going to help them really ground themselves in that transitional moment, you know, as we see with Du Bois and Washington and Trotter um, and, 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 and the like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was actually very surprising to me as well. I think that's when I started to really realize I, I, I kind of fall in love with intellectual history a little bit. That yeah. that chapter is really the one where I talk about that. And and I also kind of, as I was saying, backed into it with, and really came to realize that in my dissertation, which was about interracial marriage mm-hmm. in Boston. And I basically just looked at different, you know, prominent black 
leaders and thinkers, um, how they handled the issue of interracial marriage was very interesting to me. Um, you know, they they kind of uh, didn't at at one on the one hand didn't want to be, you know, uh, so outspoken on the issue, but at the same time realized that it was an important right that had to be defended, even if they didn't necessarily agree with it. And uh, that mm-hmm. that dilemma is pretty much you know what I talked about in my earlier work. And so it forced me to look at, uh, I looked at, I looked at how Du Bois thought about interracial marriage in the pages of the crisis. This is my other, you know, my other earlier project. I, and, and I also wanted to see where Booker T. Washington stood on the whole thing. And that was interesting to me that exactly that the uh, descendants of William Lloyd Garrison in this case, if I'm talking yep. about Boston, you know, were, were, were extremely supportive of Booker T. Washington. Um, you know, spending their own money to send him on trips, supporting him, um, and and in, and even uh, at Harvard, especially, you know, not that they were necessarily all abolitionists, but um, that you know, kind of uh, uh, their support of May, which legitimizes Washington so much, uh, is important. Right. That that mm-hmm. that kind of support and, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, endorsement in a sense of Washington's ideas uh, is is an important thing. Um, and so it challenges our kind of like linear sense about about how things or at least for me, how things work. You know, it's it falls in that same category of the paradoxes of Boston. You might assume one thing about it. You might assume no, no, no. They, they wouldn't. They would. They wouldn't support, you know, this kind of uh, uh, mentality uh, that rejected, you know, uh, civil rights or or talked about, you know, this one of accommodation position um, because they're more progressive. But but they do, right? Um, and a lot of that speaks to. Um, there's a scholar by the name of Mark Schneider who who wrote about this years ago. This was his dissertation. Uh, Boston confronts Jim Crow, a book that came out when I was in college, and and that that helped me to understand that things are not what they seem. You have to look a lot more closely. Um, uh, I also learned and realized that we the myth making can go the other way too. We might assume, oh, Boston is the headquarters of abolition, you know, or the or one of the major headquarters at least mm-hmm. of progressive abolitionism. Um, in the country, because there's different, there's all different kinds of abolitionist approaches. The Quakers in Philadelphia had a different approach. You know, if Benjamin Franklin had a very different approach than mm-hmm. the oh, up in New uh, up in New York, um, uh, with the gradual emancipation, or or even you know, um, you know, uh, 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 the the movement of people, you know, re-emigration schemes and all that stuff. Um, but as progressive as Boston's abolitionists were, not everybody in Boston was an abolitionist, though. You know, 100%. right? You know, you have this. It's a small band who did who did uh, something so powerful that you might think the whole you know the whole city agrees with this kind of thing. But that was also not never the case. So 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 one could be an abolitionist. Uh, uh, I learned very painfully that, but uh, not necessarily believe in the social stat you know social 
equality with black people or even want to be around black people on a personal level. These are all things, you know, you were so right when you talked about Bracey. These these are a lot of things I learned from him, you know, in his in his, you know, uh showing us the the inconsistencies and the um various sort of paradoxes that that exist that forced us you know, in our, in my education, at least, and, and I think well, a lot of us went to UMass, shout out to UMass, um, <laughs> Amherst, Afro-Am Studies uh, Department, you know, it, it, it showed us that things are not always what they seem and you have to look, uh, look more deeply. Um, and I, uh, um, I think that, I think that, um, just because one is the descendant of an abolitionist doesn't mean that they necessarily also carry the same beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was surprising. That was a that was surprising, um, um, and uh, and indeed, you know, like like I was saying, Mark Schneider, he he wrote about, you know, the extinguishing of the progressive abolitionist flame, you know, in Boston by the end of the nineteenth century. That that passion um, around fighting for equality was starting to flicker. And of course, we haven't even talked, you know, by the 20th century, Boston is a whole different space uh, for, mm -hmm. but explainable reasons. You know, these are, these are, this is what I love about history. There's measurable, uh, you know, to some extent, it's not like a perfect science, but there are some, there are some good reasons why things ended up being the way they were in Boston in the 20th century. And for those who are looking to see that fine transition, you got to go get the book and see why Professor Sean Alexander said this is a significant contribution that will do much to shift discussion around Black America's long struggle for civil rights from the South to the North and expose how African Americans in the North, particularly urban Boston, use their particular environments, politics, and social conditions to respond to the rapidly changing social and political situation. Before busing skillfully shows how the community of Black Bostonians unified and built coalition to define freedom, citizenship, and equality. Y'all, we have had the amazing opportunity to chat with my brother Zebulon Vance Miletsky, who is the Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Stony Brook University. We've been on here to talk about his brand new book published by our friends at UNC Press, Before Bussing, A History of Boston's Long Black Freedom Show. And so, y'all, I'm very happy to have interviewed my good friend here and look forward to seeing him in a few days down in Jacksonville, Florida at Asala's Conference, the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History. Didn't even have to look up or look down to remember. All up in here in the head. It's been many, many years. It's been many, many years. And so, y'all, I am your host of New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel and New Books Network. Until next time, y'all, over and out.